Welcome to the podcast of the Renew Community. We strive to be a Jesus community who cares about the things Jesus cares about. This podcast was recorded at our last gathering. Teaching like this is how we worship together every other week. We look to the scriptures seeking to become more like Christ. We're glad you're listening. This morning, I'm really uh, excited about what what God is doing. And uh, um, we've been reading the book of Colossians, and it's been really interesting to hear the way we've been connecting with a book that was written to a small community, a house church, or maybe even two house churches, in a small sort of forgotten town um, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and how that ancient message from 2,000 years is connecting deeply with this community now. And so I'm grateful that this morning we get a chance to dive into some of the hard stuff of Colossians. And my prayer is that as we look at this, we hear the gracious and kind voice of God calling out to us in these words. So I want to introduce Dave. Uh, he's going he's gonna to be teaching this morning, and I'll let him introduce himself. Yeah. Thanks, Doug. Properly. So good morning. I'm Dave. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, no, but seriously, like, I am I'm honored that uh, Ben asked me into this, and I, I, th- I want to thank Ben and Doug and my wife, too, and others like who are praying for me, and these guys have like encouraged me so much just in this teaching and to like take this on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, Colossians. So this is, it's, it's a really short letter. Uh, you can read this in less than 15 minutes. But at the same time, Colossians is really big in that it's, it's a whole thing. It's one, and it needs to be looked at as a whole, I think. So a few weeks ago, there was a group of us going through this letter, and I was thinking afterwards that it is really difficult to break this letter up and teach on it in sections, because each part of it builds on the groundwork that was laid in the previous part. I found this like especially so in looking at this letter from a discipleship aspect. Uh, I feel like discipleship is all over this letter. Um, Yeah, and so to prove my point of not being able to break it up, we're going to teach on it by breaking it up this morning, yeah. And then we'll get into the discipleship part. Uh, Wanna lay a little bit of groundwork first, and I think like Ange, she totally hit on this. uh, This one, I thought she was gonna steal my teaching. Uh, but, But Jesus didn't operate from this position of applying guilt or shaming people to live a kingdom life, all right? This isn't my intention either. Uh, I don't intentionally operate from that position, but this is something that I've changed my own thinking on, uh, and I'll get to more on that in a little bit. That being said, like some of the things we look at this morning, if we take them out of context, that can seem that way. Uh, In that vein, we should pray. Lord God, I thank you for each person that's here this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to be up here. I thank you for words that I really feel like you gave me to say. But God, I also pray that like, as the words come out of my mouth, that as they're going out towards people's ears, that your spirit would go out before them and clear up any sort of confusion that there might be and hit people's hearts, God, so that they turn towards you. Yeah, God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to imagine this morning that you're back in Colossae, and you're walking in on the middle of the reading of this letter, all right? Maybe you're running late because the kids are out of control, or better yet, maybe you're a new person in the faith, and you're trying to find Nympha's house, who's 
church this was written to, uh, the house church in our house, and you accidentally go to Nimrod's house or, or whatever. But the point is, you're late, and you miss the first part of the letter. All right? And this, this might seem a little strange to imagine this, but I, th- I think sometimes we do this in our faith. At, l- at least I do. We only tend to focus on one side of discipleship, the obedience. The this is what we need to do to be considered obedient. And we don't put emphasis on how we get there. Anyway, we're going to read from chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Put to death... Hold on, here we... Yep. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. So you hear that. What are you thinking after you hear this without hearing the first couple chapters? What are you thinking Jesus is all about? Just let that question just sink in and keep it in your minds. My thoughts, as I was reading through it, like, man, that's a lot of rules. (laughs) That's a lot of rules that I break all the time. Jesus is about the rules, legalism. God is telling us to live a holy life What we're called to is pretty clear. Where we operate from, the source of the strength, if you will, to accomplish that isn't really clear at all. So better yet, let's imagine again. What if we heard the parts at the beginning of this letter? Then maybe we had to leave early because the kids had a baseball game or you were going to a birthday party or whatever the first century Colossae equivalent of those are. And by the way, this isn't just some slick way for Ben and Doug to tell us that we need to show up on time and stay for the whole service. So anyway, here's the part right before you leave. We're going to jump back into chapter 1 for this, and we're going to start in verse 15. And this is stuff that Aubrey and Ben read at the last gathering. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, 
things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he may have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his faithfulness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firmed, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So what do we think of Jesus now? We're reconciled, holy, without blemish, free from accusation, all because Jesus made peace by his death on the cross. We're told who we are because of Jesus, and it's pretty awesome, quite frankly. We want to stand up and cheer after hearing this. Not so much after the stuff we read in chapter 3, but there aren't any guardrails on this stuff in chapter 1. What that looks like in practice, our everyday lives. What we're called to isn't clear. This part is like high on the love of God, His grace, and low on the holiness factor that we saw in chapter 3. And we see this play out, right? There's these two sides. There's this tension. We say God is love, or God is holy. The boundless love of Jesus, where we think we're free to live our lives as we please with an anything-goes attitude because Jesus died for all. Or, the other side of the coin, hyper-holiness with this iron-fisted morality police running around ready to shame and guilt anyone who isn't following the rules as they're laid out. It's like the Pharisees looking at the rules and saying, I'm good. It's time to start judging those who aren't. So which is it? You have the holiness or the legalism on this side, or you have like the love and the grace over on this side. These two things come crashing together in the person and deity of Jesus the Christ. In human flesh, the perfect combination of love and holiness. That's what we're called to, love and holiness. And to be honest, to live this out is like a lot harder than just taking one of the sides and running with that. Because in the middle, you get to have this wonderful position of making anyone who is out on the sides feel uncomfortable. Early in my walk as a Jesus follower, someone said to me, Dave, if you sin enough, God will just take you out. As in, God will kill you. Uh, you can read this into chapter 3, right? Remember that, the wrath of God is coming part? But, but is that what God is like? Like just this cosmic umpire waiting to eject you from the game of life if you commit too many sins? Like the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back? Part of the intent of this quote, I, I think, wasn't like this entirely negative thing, but it was to point out like how much God hates sin. He really, really does. It's serious business but it leaves out the fact that God loves us. But God hates sin because it hurts the one that he loves. 
Part of my story is carrying this with me. I'm stuck at times in habitual sin, not seeing a way out and worrying that God is going to eventually get me. Stuck in this dark tunnel and you can see that light, but I'm not sure if it's safe enough to go and experience it because of my brokenness. Part of my story is also coming out of that tunnel, into the light, trying to live free of the shame and the guilt of my past actions and my thinking. So how does this play out in our real lives? So to be a disciple of Jesus, we, we need both. We need his love and his holiness. When Doug and Ben were doing the series on discipleship, one of them taught that there is both a being component and a doing component to being a disciple. There is a who you are and a how we live. And those two things are inseparable. Lucky for us, Paul writes this letter and others with a progression. So, and after he lays some groundwork of who Jesus is, what he did, and who we are now as a result of him, our being, Paul gives some practical advice on how that looks in our real life, our doing. He makes this switch using terms like, so then, or therefore, and since. And that just shows you that that switch is coming. Those terms are used at least six times in, just in Colossians. We need to pay attention to these terms. They, they signify an, an importance that we're, we're saying, okay, now that you understand that, here's what you need to do with it. So a lot of times we like to start in chapter 3 with the sin, right? There's a lot of evangelism tools that do this, with Jesus being the second part. Paul is saying that Jesus is the source, the power to live the kind of life Jesus desires us to live. So here's a point, going back to this middle ground where we need to walk as a disciple, 100% love and 100% holiness. Point is that because of who Jesus is and what he did, we are capable of being his disciples and exhibiting boundless love and grace as well as boundless holiness. How? We need to know who Jesus is and who we are. We need to learn it. We need to internalize it. We need to speak it to ourselves. We need to speak it to others. Paul speaks this to the Colossians. He prays that they would have wisdom, understanding, power, endurance, patience, and joy. He calls them rescued, redeemed, forgiven, reconciled, without blemish, free from accusation, and holy, just to name a few. How are we these things? Because of Jesus. And as Paul says, the mystery is being revealed. Christ in us. Jesus, the image of God, creator of all things, visible and invisible, risen from the dead in us. And quite honestly, like the words don't do Jesus justice. These things are, in my opinion, indescribable. But he tries to sum it up in saying that in everything, Christ might have supremacy. In everything. There's a, there's a part in Ephesians where Paul says that Jesus is filling the universe with himself. How big is this God? Maybe like a practice for us, you know, as we go home this week, just find some space and some quiet and just think about these things and speak them, who God is. God, you are supreme over everything and speak who we are. Because of Jesus, I am reconciled, I am redeemed, I am forgiven, I am without blemish, I am holy. Therefore, right, so now what? <laughs> 
we've rooted our identity in Christ, and we, but now we need to live our lives. The being doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? As Anne said when she was talking about the opportunities. True faith always manifests itself in some sort of action. And understand this isn't a go figure out what Jesus did and who you are because of it, and then go live your life. We need to live our lives now. So Paul, in chapter 3, gives practical advice on how to do that. And also to be clear, like we don't just gut these things out, all right? Trying to do them under our own power, or better yet, do these things thinking we somehow gain God's approval by doing them. Culturally, we're conditioned to think this, right? We do something, we get rewarded. We have a job, we work, we get paid, right? Doing this leads to, if you could bring that slide up, Pat. This is something that I learned actually from JR, and I got this slide from him. Uh, this is called the endless cycle of religious enslavement. So I want you to, let's see, maybe we'll do imagination time again. I want you to picture four boxes kind of making like a rectangle. And in those four boxes, there's an arrow leading to each one of the other boxes. Great. That's good. I didn't think we could imagine that. So now we have a picture. All right. So the basis of this diagram is that being a disciple isn't some religious program to make you try harder or some moral program to make you look better. All right. It's not a list of rules that you follow. You look at it this way, you're always going to fail. This is me. God's going to get you sin quote. All right. Has anybody else been through this? Yes. Yes. I'm still trying to shake this sometimes. Just mechanically following the rules can be a fallback position, right? Insert yourself anywhere into this cycle. Like maybe you're at the point where you've quit. You've give up, right? What's the point? This following Jesus thing is hard. Following the rules is hard. Then maybe you talk to a friend or you listen to a podcast or you have a coffee with one of the pastors and, and you feel convicted. And then all of a sudden you feel guilty so you jump back in, and now you're trying really hard to get this thing right, and you go, and you go, and you go until you can't go anymore, and you get tired, until you're too tired to do anymore, and then you quit, and the cycle starts all over again. Take note that none of these four boxes, the guilt, the fatigue, quitting, trying harder, are words that should come to mind or are compatible with living in the kingdom of God. So what's missing here? Say it. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> if you try to live the Jesus life and be his disciple on your own power, you will fail. Not you might fail, you will fail. Jesus has to be the foundation. So how do we fix this? Alfredo did a teaching on this a few months ago. You can go look up the podcast. We abide. We abide in Jesus. We accept him and his love for us. And Jesus says that if we abide in him, he'll abide in us. Right? We stamp abide all over this stinking cycle. Right? What would this cycle look like if we focused on God's goodness instead of our shortcomings and shame? Amen? But like in the letter to Colossians, we don't just accept Jesus or abide in him and then sit back and expect all these things that just happened, right? When God pours his grace into our lives, we don't just kick back on the sofa with a can of beer and say we're good now. It doesn't mean we do nothing. God's grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. No, we act. That's faith. 
Like I said before, true faith is always backed up by some sort of action. It's His grace. Think of God's grace as His actions in our lives. That leads to knowledge of Him. So they're like, wow, God does stuff. He loves and He cares about me. His actions in our lives lead to our knowledge of Him and ultimately give us the faith to act. So we abide in the Jesus described in Colossians 1 and 2, and then we from this blessing and in the things described in Colossians 3 and 4. All right, so back to the rules, chapter 3. I don't want to focus on these things and explain these things one by one and tick them off, except to say that I believe these things are real and that the intention is that we do or follow them, or that at least the church in Colossae should do them, as Paul wrote to them, and by extension, us. Behind that, like some of these things listed, the sins, if you will, can, as we said before, hurt us as individuals and as a community. We break the relationship we have with God and with others when we engage in these things. God doesn't want us to get hurt. God is for us. He wants us to be in right relationship with Him, and He wants to be in right relationship with us. And as we saw God's great love for us in the previous chapters, He doesn't want this for us. And quite frankly, to take it to its foundation, this isn't who we are because of Jesus. I say this as one who's guilty of every one of these negative things listed in chapter 3, and guilty of not doing the positive virtues that are listed there. And I get hung up on that, and I beat myself up for that sometimes. But he says I am forgiven. He says I am reconciled. He says I am made whole. He says I am loved and accepted. That's where I need to dwell when shame and guilt creep in. So it's really a question of identity. We're, we're his beloved children, Christ living in us, but we also sin. The question is, when sin or temptation creeps in, which identity are we going to choose? That of the sinner, where normative behavior would be sinning, or the identity of a son or daughter of Christ, Christ dwelling in us. What's the normative behavior for a child of God? Paul also goes on, he makes several comparisons to death and life in the letter, with the ultimate being the death and resurrection of Jesus. But, but this is a picture of us. When we turn to Jesus, our old identity dies, and our new identity is that of being alive in Christ. We're born again, if you will. And for the new creature that's just born, everything about life is brand new. Everything changes. It's different in that the old no longer exists different than it was before. So how does this relate to us? Where does our deeper reality lie? Sinner or the child of the loving Father? If we abide in Him and His love, the deeper reality is that of a child of God, even when we sin. Don't get me wrong. This isn't the opportunity to go out and abuse the fact that we're His children and sin, sin, and sin some more. It's the idea that sinner isn't even who we are, and we need to live into that. Next point. See something really interesting with how Paul relates discipleship. We see several categories of behavior here in chapter 3. Some of these are like internal behaviors and attitudes, like lust and greed and evil desires. And while these may seem personal, they have an effect on those around us. We, we We don't sin in a vacuum. 
Ask the sailors who were on the ship with Jonah. Jonah thought his deal was between him and God, and all those guys almost lost their lives as a result of that. Right? And then second, we see behaviors towards others, like particularly our behavior within the body of believers. So he says things, don't get angry, don't slander others, don't use filthy language or lie, be compassionate, kind, gentle, forgiving. Lastly, our behaviors toward those who may not know Christ. This is summarized in the statement, which this can hit both the personal and communal behavior. Whatever you say or do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he develops this further in chapter four. He says, be wise in the way you act to outsiders. Use graceful conversation. Another thing to note is that Paul says, put to death in regards to these things that we would call negative behaviors and clothe yourself in regards to these things that would be positive virtues. Both of these things can be seen as a process, something that can take time to accomplish and often perhaps be uncomfortable. Final point, maybe we can smile or laugh a little bit. Bring up that picture, Pat. Can't, <laughs> maybe I'll smile and laugh a little bit. <laughs> Last point is on clothing. We eventually get this picture up here. It may surprise you. In the late 80s and early 90s, dating myself a little bit, there was an iconic cable access television show called Wayne's World. This is hosted by Wayne Campbell and co-hosted by our friend Garth Algar. While Wayne was kind of like the powerhouse of the thing, Garth was more the philosopher. <laughs> you guys can laugh, but we got to come back. There's a serious point here. After the filming of the show was moved from Wayne's parents' basement to a proper production studio, Garth was asked what he thought of the new set they had built. His response, very deep, says, it's kind of like a new pair of underwear. At first, it's constrictive, but after a while, it becomes a part of you. <laughs> so it's interesting that, that Paul relates the virtues of the Christian life to putting on and taking off clothes. He says to put on these virtues like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. And like I said, clothing yourself is a process. It isn't instantaneous. The clothes just don't appear on your body. And these new clothes can take time until they feel natural, a part of who you are. It becomes a part of you. Picture of taking off old clothes, ones that we no longer identify with, ones that don't fit because of who we are and putting on new clothes. This is becoming. Discipleship is becoming. And it's something that Jesus is very concerned with. And as with Garth's underwear, we want to become people, the people Jesus sees us as and also live that becoming until it becomes a part of us. Thank you for listening to the podcast of the Renew Community. This in no way should replace the formation within a community of Jesus followers. If you are looking for a church, would like more information about Renew, or would like to give financially to this ministry, check out our website at renewcommunity.org.